Okay, a couple of text messages coming in during the uh, interview there. Um, in relationship to the Newcastle lockout laws in, um, in relationship to alcohol, um, it says, while I fully agree with the alcohol problem and suffering it causes human greed has... Oh, sorry. Human greed has no boundaries. Mm. That is why things will, unfortunately, will get progressively worse as even most Christians don't think drinking alcohol is wrong. True. How bizarre is that? You, it's not incorrect, got, though. You've got an addictive... The weird thing was I was talking to um, a guy that I met who was working in Dubai mm. and uh, he was not allowed to buy alcohol in Dubai because, you know, it's an Islamic country yeah. because on his visa he marked down that he was an atheist. You're only allowed to buy alcohol if you mark down that you're a Christian. <gasps> That's actually really sad. <laughs> so sad. Oh, what? It is so sad. An addictive, destructive what? drug, you know, that one in seven people who take their first drink of alcohol are going to become addicted to it, going to become an alcoholic. The Bible says no drunkard will enter heaven. I just don't it's just, understand. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. But anyway, uh, continuing on here, the world will get so bad that it will become like the days of Lot. This is true. Bible says that only Jesus' return can save us. The COVID nineteen lockdown has caused more pain to the world than oops than anything else. Such not only economic but also suicide, drug abuse, murders, sex abuse, destructive influence on families and society. And I think that's one of the things that um, has really come out with the COVID lockdown. So we've got lockdown and lockout here. Mm. So lockout is obviously you know stopping people from drinking alcohol late at nights. Lockdown. Um, you know, was what we had during the the height of the COVID crisis, and then in 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 smaller uh, areas since then, and it always puts a tremendous amount of social pressure mm. on the population whenever that happens. Um, we don't need lockouts; we need new hearts. Oh, now this is a really good point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we and I, I will say this: we need lockouts because we don't have new hearts. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, he says, "I'm not disputing your arguments of pub lockouts in Newcastle." So, mm. you know, is clarifying right there that um, that's, he's not trying to argue against that, but he is saying that if we had new hearts, mm. that would solve the problem, and it would. It absolutely wouldn't. It would solve yeah. many, many problems. In oh, fact. A whole bunch of problems. <laughs> yes, indeed, it would. So that was, um, yes, a couple of interesting um, text messages coming through there uh, during the break. All right. Uh, Bible study time. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. Let's read the first three verses, please, Minnie. Yeah, I'm just going to say a prayer before I read. Um, Papa Lord God, I just want to thank you so much that we can open your word um, together on air this morning. Um, just be with us and your spirit that we can um, just have a clear picture of the message that you want to share with us. And thank you that you are still speaking. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first three verses, Isaiah chapter 14. But the Lord will have mercy on the descendants of Jacob. He will choose Israel as his special people once again. He will bring them back to settle once what, uh, once again in their own land. And people from many different nations will come and join them there and unite with the people of Israel. The nations of the world will help the Lord's people to return. And those who come to live in their land will serve them. Those who captured Israel will themselves be captured and Israel will rule over its enemies. 
Verse 3, in that wonderful day when the Lord gives his people rest from sorrow and fear, from slavery and change, you will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your insolence is ended. Okay, and then it sort of begins, heads into a bit of a taunt of the king of Babylon here yeah. uh, that we're going to look at uh, over the next couple of days. It's going to be very, very interesting working our way through it. Of course, this takes us. this prophecy is kind of taking us through the... Um, you know, the big picture of Babylon. So mm. in the big picture of Babylon, chapter 13 is God's judgments on Babylon. Babylon is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. It's never going to be rebuilt. Uh, it would be kind of bizarre if uh, somebody came along with a prophecy like that in relationship to, say, the city of Sydney. Mm. You would say that a city that is that big, that is that populous, that it will just sort of, it will never disappear. Uh, however, when you think about some of the incredible civilizations of the past and the monuments that they built, and you look at how quickly and how rapidly they disappeared. So let's think about Nineveh. Nineveh was almost as big as Babel. Well, not almost. It was Nineveh. The population of Nineveh at this time was about 120,000 people, mm. which was a massive urban society in those days. Uh, Babylon was about 200,000. Um, so these were just, you know, and, and, and Babylon was peaking at, I think, you know, 350, 380,000, somewhere around there. And, and you think about the logistics of a city of that size in that era. So, um, you know, think of our biggest sports stadiums. I don't know how many do they hold. I really don't know, but probably, you know, a very, a much less amount of that. And let's think about, what it takes to provide for the needs of that many people, say 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people, for several hours while they watch a sports match. Mm. Think about the food that is required. Think about the sewage that is required. Think about the facilities that are required to be able to provide for that many people just for a couple of hours. Yeah. Now you've got a city that doesn't have modern sewage, doesn't have modern electricity, doesn't have any of the mod cods, doesn't have modern transport like we have today. These were cities that were absolutely marvellous in what they were able to accomplish. And you look at the, some of the monuments that they were able to build. I mean, you go to Egypt and you look at the Great Pyramids of Giza and these are massive monuments that have lasted thousands of years and we go and we stand in wonder at them today mm. and then you look at you know the, the the great monuments that we've got in Sydney for instance like you know the Opera House or the Sydney Harbour Bridge or some of the uh, you know your Sydney Tower or any of those great skyscrapers that are there and if you had somebody who came along and said yeah in 200 years time this is all going to be gone and it's going to be a desolate wasteland we'd be we'd, we'd say no that's ridiculous yeah just laugh at them we would we would laugh at them mm. And then you read, and then you read, say, for instance, the history of Xenophon. Xenophon was a Greek. Mm -hmm. He was a Greek mercenary that was fighting in a Persian civil war. Okay, so this is during the Persian era. Mm -hmm. So this is after the fall of Nineveh, which was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was after the time period in which Babylon had fallen several times mm. and Babylon was incredibly diminished. He's fighting in a Persian civil war. He ends up in the middle of uh, Babylonia and his side loses 
and his Greek mercenaries have to somehow find their way home from there. Interesting experiences. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. And so as as they're marching home, you know, well, fighting their way home <laughs> uh, because they're a long way from Greece, they come across several cities and he describes these cities in great detail. And what is blowing his mind is he's like, these, these, these are great cities with just mind-blowing fortifications, the most amazing monuments he has ever seen. He's come from Greece, you know, little small city-states and terribly divided and fighting against each other all the time. And he's seeing these things and he's like, what kind, what kind of people built this? <laughs> yeah. And nobody lives there. Mm. And he has no idea. And he asks the locals and they're like, we don't know. We think maybe the Medes who built this. Mm. And it was the city, one of them was the city of Nineveh. And it's only 200 years later. You know, the great Assyrian capital of Nineveh mm. that supported 120,000 people. And just 200 years later, it's just kind of covered by sand. Incredible. And, and we are so arrogant that, that we think our civilization is going to last forever. We go to Egypt today and we see the pyramids that are a couple of thousand years old and we stand in awe and we say, you know, what kind of people built this? How did people build this? Mm. You know, what was going on? You know, in a couple of thousand years from now, we're going to have archaeologists who are looking at the remnants of Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and trying to piece together. You know, what kind of a building was that Opera House? Mm. What kind of a building stood here? And what was the purpose of you know, of this bridge? And what did it originally look like? And they're scratching their heads and trying to figure it out because everything we know as a civilization is gone. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're so arrogant we think, oh, yeah, you know, it lasts forever. No, mm-hmm. it won't. History bears that out, that history goes through cycles. And the fact is it won't last forever because Jesus is coming soon. And that's a good thing. Uh, but it's interesting to let your mind wander, you know, what if history was to continue? And, you know, you've got these great, these great, um, these great cities and they fall and they disappear and, and they just get swallowed up by the sand and, and we go back and look at them and scratch our heads and, you know, these, these, are, these are monuments that are just incredibly old. Mm. Uh, I got sidetracked there. It's okay, it was an interesting sidetrack. <laughs> uh, let's go to where, where we were. We, okay, so in chapter 14, the first few verses here. So we, we, we've dealt with the, you know, the God's judgments on Nineveh. Now we've got a promise for God's people. Yeah. This is an interesting promise for God's people because nothing has happened to God's people yet. Yeah, exactly. You know, God's people are at home in the promised land, living in the land of Judah, and nothing has happened to them yet. And yet... You've got this guy prophesying about Babylon. Mm. And Babylon is going to do this to God's people, and Babylon is going to take them into captivity, and this is going to be terrible for God's people. And then he gives this message of hope. Mm. And what a great message it is. Let's, uh, let's look at it again here. Uh, the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. Mm. You know, the people listening to this prophecy, you can kind of imagine them thinking to themselves, what's he talking about? Yeah. We are in our own land. That's right. We're, we're free. 
there are strangers who come and join our land from time to time who immigrate here and who like living here. Yeah. That happens. The Bible talks about it on numerous occasions. You've got Uriah the Hittite was one of David's most trusted servants. Mm. He married into the nation of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and they'd be thinking, well, you know, uh, what are you talking about, Isaiah? For the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and for handmaids, and they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And once again, they're saying, well, we're not being oppressed. (laughs) But Isaiah is seeing the future. Mm. Isaiah is seeing what Babylon will do in the future and how Babylon will oppress God's people in the future. Isaiah understands this Mm. through the gift of prophecy. He's like, yeah, you're going to be taken captive. Now you imagine if, uh, if you are one of the captives. So let's let's think about that captivity for a moment because at the time of the captivity is uh, Judah was in terrible apostasy. They had four bad kings in a row that just worshipped Baal and every other pagan god that there was. Mm. Uh, they've led Israel into apostasy. You've had kings like Manasseh who worships basically worships Satan in the temple, puts a statue of you know a satanic statue in the temple. That's you know the equivalent of. Worshipping Satan in a local church. Mm. That's that's kind of where Manasseh went. You've had these terrible, terrible kings. You've had you know a few revivals here and there uh, that have been just turned the nation far, far away from God. Not everybody turns away from God. We know that because of the story of Daniel and his free, his friends, mm. his three friends. That you know they end up as captives in Babylon and they and they remain faithful to God. But think about yourself as the average Jew. You've grown up in a nation that is steeped in apostasy. And then as an entire nation, you've been taken captive by another nation, which is a pagan nation. And, you know, the mindset of the times, if uh, our nation can overtake your nation, then our gods are stronger than your gods. Yeah, that's right. And, And they would be constantly being reminded of that by their captors. Why are you serving Yahweh? Yahweh doesn't even live in this country. He's back there in Judah because that's how they saw their gods in those days. Why would you, why would you be serving a god that's not even here? Uh, the local god here is Marduk. You should be serving him. Um, and maybe they only have vague recollections of who Yahweh is and how to worship Yahweh. You could you could see yourself becoming and 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 you've got the example of the northern nation the northern tribes of Israel that were taken captive by the Assyrians and they've just vanished. Yeah, that's right. They've just intermarried, blended in, accepted the customs of you know the people around them, and disappeared. I think they didn't even have any good kings. No, there was no revivals. None. It was just a line of bad. They worshipped. They 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 varied between bad and very bad. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, their best was bad. Yeah, when they served Yahweh in the form of a golden calf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that was the best they ever had. Um, and so you could look at that and go, "Well, we're done." Yeah, you know, that would be the natural thing to look at. Is we're done. Why bother? And then somebody turns up with this prophecy. This message. That's the right. prophecy of Isaiah. Mm. Wow. 
and you start to read it, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, this was written 150 years ago? Isaiah knew we were going into Babylonian captivity 150 years ago. Isaiah didn't say Assyrian captivity. He said Babylonian captivity. This is when Assyria was ruling the world with an iron fist. Mm. And even in captivity, they did. there was some level of access to these prophecies. You know, we know at least That's with right. Daniel. Absolutely. He was studying out Jeremiah's 70-year prophecies. And he's the prime minister of the Babylonian Empire. You mm. know that he's going to be in communication with his people. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. You know, so that it's not that, yeah, people couldn't have access to them, but I would imagine that it was the people who were willing to be seeking God's heart who would be interested or just the ones who were desperate. And open-minded. That's right, yeah. You know, you get somebody who's an open-minded person today and they discover the Bible and they start to read the prophecies yeah. of the Bible. It's very compelling. Absolutely. And if you were uh, a Jew living in Babylon during the captivity and you discovered this prophecy, it would be very, very compelling. Yes, yes. Be like, absolutely. wow, wait a minute. Yahweh is actually a really powerful God. Mm. Yahweh is doing some things here and talking about some things, you know, a long time in advance. And I'd also imagine, well, this is me just speaking from opinion from how many thousands years later, but that it's also interesting that you have Yahweh as a God who does restore and redeem. Because a lot of the other gods, it's a very much almost like a you appease me, right? That's right. You come to me and I'll decide it's an appeasement if model. it's worthy. Whereas this is a God who goes, no, 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 no. I'll do the work. I'll, I'll bring you back. Like, I'll comfort you. And I imagine there's great hope over people who are in captivity to go, oh, there's this God who cares about us that much. That's interesting. Because they live in a time where the culture and religion were not separate. It wasn't like I have my belief and I have my daily life. We can have that here. But this is a time that, yeah, culture was saturated with religion. Yes. You know, so for them, just believing in a God is just natural, of course. Of course a God is going to do something, but what is that God going to do? How will that impact life? It'll impact, you know, like it was just a different mentality. Very, very different mentality uh, indeed. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so Brezo also had uh, a whole bunch of things that um, he wanted us to mention. Um, one of them is that, you know, we're reading this prophecy about the captivity of God's people mm. and how that God's people will be released from captivity. And we're going through the history of it, and the history of it's great. Yeah. But the reality is that we are in captivity mm. and we are in Babylon. And Jesus came so that we can be free. Oh, say it again. <laughs> Uh, and I think this is, a, I think this is a real, I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm summarizing here very, you know, brief notes that yeah. has been handed to me by uh, producer Shell. Uh, and this is what I'm seeing coming out of the notes. And I think it's really, really important mm. um, to draw out of this passage is that the prophecy is relevant for us. Mm, this is absolutely. not just something that was relevant for the Jews in those days. Um, this world is Babylon. And there is a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, that is our home, that we are citizens of, mm. that we are ambassadors for, that we don't currently live in, and that is heaven. Yeah. And uh, there is going to come a time when, well, what happened in ancient Babylon? A king came from the east and delivered God's people, mm. dried up the river Euphrates, delivered God's people and sent them to the promised land. What does the Bible say will happen at the end of time? 
the river Euphrates, Revelation chapter 16, is dried up to prepare the way for, for the kings of the east. Who comes from the east? The Bible says, as the lightning shines, even from the east to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It is Jesus who comes from the east. It is Jesus who dries up the river that is supporting modern Babylon that lives in our whole world today. And it is Jesus who takes us back to the promised land to be with his people. So good. Hey, on at church on the weekend, Matt Parra, who works here at our uh, conference office where we have our studio, he was preaching at the church I was at and he, he just kind of was really driving this point about, you know, let's be students of the Bible. And I think just what you're sharing now, this is why it's important, right? Because you start to get to know these passages and you go, that is for us. Oh, there's this connection here. Oh, there's this connection here. And I think that's awesome that we have this connection between Old and New Testament, This, like you said and like Bruce is saying. This isn't just, oh, well, that was for the Jews. It's interesting history, but that was for the Jews. It's for us. Exactly. It's for us. Yeah, it is. Okay, let me just have a quick squeeze here. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll come back to more of that in, in, in just a moment. All right, where are we up to? Let's, uh, let's read a bunch of verses here. Can you read for us, um, where do we get up to? Verse 5 down through verse 11. Okay, for the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. You struck the people with endless blows of rage and held the nations in your angry grip with unrelenting tyranny. But finally the earth is at rest and quiet. Now it can sing again. Even the trees of the forest, the cypress trees and the cedars of Lebanon sing out this joyous song. Since you have been cut down, no one will now come to cut us down. Where am I going again? To verse 11. Okay. In the place of the dead, there is excitement over your arrival. The spirits of the world leaders and mighty kings long dead... What? Oh, mighty kings long dead stand up to see you. With one voice, they all cry out, Now you, as weak, now you are as weak as we are. Your might and power are buried with you. The sound of the harp in your palace has ceased. Now maggots are your sheet and worms your blanket. Ooh, that's nice and Yeah, <laughs> this is pretty strong language right <laughs> yeah, there, isn't wow. it? Yeah, yeah. And obviously it's talking very much, um, you know, poetically here. Um, this is not something to be taken literally. Mm. But if we work our way through this particular passage, we see that what has ha- happened is that as Babylon has come to power and as Babylon has ruled over the world, they have followed the model of how to run an empire that was left to them by the Assyrians. Mm. And we need to remember that out of all of the world empires, the Assyrians were one of the longest. They weren't the biggest, but they were definitely one of the longest. Mm -hmm. They were a world empire for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in fact, I'm not sure that they even have a rival as far as length goes of their empire. When they eventually fall and Babylon takes over, uh, in fact, the world sort of became you know, divided up between a, a, a number of superpowers, but the, the big dominant one at this particular time is Babylon. Babylon is now the dominant world empire, so what are they going to do? How are they going to control the world? How are they going to run the world? Well, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, okay, we know how to run a world empire because Assyria has done it so successfully for so long. You do it through terrorism. Mm global terrorization of everybody around you. And it was kind of like this was the only thing that they knew. They'd never seen an alternative. It's not until Cyrus the Persian comes along that Cyrus actually comes along with an alternative, Yeah, which is kind of the complete opposite of, uh, you know, of everything that has, you know, he, he's like 
we're not going to run our empire like this. We're going to have religious liberty. We're going to have freedom. We're going to have the Persian deal where if you uh, come across to our side, we'll treat you really well and we won't kill any of your people and you can become you know, rulers in our kingdom and, 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 th- and this kind of thing. Babylon didn't know that. And so they ruled the world in the way the Assyrians ruled the world. And you can see that in the psychopathy of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, for instance. The guy's a total lunatic at times. You know, when he loses the plot, he's just going to kill, kill everyone. everyone. Mm. And, and this, was, this was just how the world had been run. This was the norm. That's how it was. And so, and, you know, he takes the entire nation of Judah captive. That was what the Assyrians did. He is just, he is just running the world out of the Assyrian playbook. And so the Bible talks about it right here and talks about all of the terrible things he's done and how the whole earth will be at rest once he is dead. Mm. And once he's welcomed into the grave where he's going to be eaten by maggots and worms. Lovely, yeah. Death. Quite a, but quite it's a still, it's, it, it's a good point to just be like, there's going to be an end to this and you're going right. to be as dead as the next king. You and know? powerless. Yes. Absolutely yes. powerless. And I think this is the encouraging thing for us that we need to look at is... When we look at our world today and we see terrible, terrible things happening that are so against God, we can take courage mm. in the fact that this is not going to last forever. Mm. Jesus is going to return. These powerful people that are in rebellion against God will lose their power and God's love will reign supreme for the rest of eternity. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It has come time for... Four. Here it comes... Question of the day. <laughs> okay, the question today is, what does Galatians 5.11 mean when it says the cross was abolished? Okay, so this came out of our quiz. Yes. And we had a whole bunch of people calling up over the quiz with all kinds of different answers. Mm-hmm. And me and I put forward all kinds of different answers. We eventually got there, but it was a, uh, a challenging one. Uh, why don't you read us the quiz clue that we're okay. talking about? So the clue said, Galatians 5 says, It is an offence to, and an abolishment of me, to preach righteousness by works. Okay, so let me read that uh, Galatians. Have you got Galatians 5.11 there in your translation? Let me read it from the King James Version. It says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offence of the cross ceased. Hmm. This is Paul using his deep theological language. Do you have it there in a uh, easier translation? Okay, so this version says, "Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you might be, you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended." Okay, so let's um, let's, let's 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 talk about this in a little bit more detail and, and try and figure out what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Paul talks about preaching about circumcision mm. that is symbolic for preaching about righteousness by works. Yes. And so he says, basically, if I preached righteousness by works, the offense of the cross would not exist. Mm. Okay, so we've got to ask ourselves, well, then, what is the offense of the cross? Why would the offense of the cross not, why would the cross not be offensive if he was preaching righteousness by works? And uh, we, so we need to understand what the offense of the cross is. The offense of the cross, the thing that makes the cross offensive is our weakness, our inability 
to live a righteous life. And the reason that our inability or our weakness is what makes the cross offensive is because if we had ability, Mm. if we had strength, the cross would never have existed. Yeah, we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't need it. We could be righteous on our own, in our own power. The cross would never have existed. Jesus would never have died on the cross. Paul would never have preached about the cross. People would never have been offended by the fact that Paul was preaching about the cross because it's like, well, you know, the cross is the most offensive thing ever. That's where criminals die, etc., etc., etc. But what he's saying is the real offense of the cross is our sin. Because it's our sin that necessitated the cross. Mm, mm-hmm. It is our sin that came as a result of our weakness. And so he's like, well, you know, why are you talking about circumcision? Why are you talking about salvation by works? You talk about circumcision, you talk about salvation by works. The cross is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's done away with. The offense of the cross is gone. It's not even, you know, it's, it just doesn't exist. But we preach the cross and the cross is offensive. Yeah. And the offense is what we have done. Mm. It is what we have done because of our human weakness, our human sin, our human nature, where all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the offense of the cross. I was just going to read this quote, which is essentially says what you said, but it's by an author, E.J. Wagner. Um, he's from back in the day a bit. Uh, the offense is that a confession of human frailty and sin and of an inability to do any good thing. Yeah, I think that pretty pretty much sums it up quite well. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.